For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the pastors here. Our lead pastor, Paul, he is away for the weekend, and so I get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Before I do, just want to wish you a a wonderful, hope you had a good, wonderful Thanksgiving, um, that your bellies are full coming in today. Maybe, you know, belt loops, maybe pulled back one a little bit, a little bit a little bit fuller in the tummy. Um, hearts are encouraged, and uh, maybe your checking accounts a little bit lighter from all those good Black Friday um, deals that you took over the weekend. But all in all, I hope you had a great weekend spending time with family and with friends, and I'm looking forward to the Christmas season that's to come. And if you are a guest with us, you've actually come at a really good time. Just last Sunday, we finished up our 20-month journey through the book of Genesis. And I want you guys just, for those of you who've been walking through that journey, Aren't you just grateful over and over again as we witness God's grace towards his people, um, his faithfulness to keep all of his promises? And now we're going to fast forward from the book of Genesis really, really far into the New Testament and specifically to the book of Galatians. And we, over the next four weeks, are going to prepare our hearts for Advent. If you're not familiar with that word Advent, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, uh, which means coming or arrival. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has set aside this time for the purpose of reflection and meditation on the first coming of Christ. Uh, The joy, the wonder, the spectacle of this perfect Son of God breaking into our world of brokenness and sadness and sin to bring about hope and healing and restoration of our souls. But Advent, is, it's not just a time of looking back. It's also a time of looking forward with anticipation and longing as we await the second coming of Christ, where, where Jesus will once again, he'll break into our world of division and doubt and even despair for the purpose of bringing out complete healing, complete restoration, and complete fulfillment of his promise to make all things new. As Revelation tells us, right, there's At that time, there's going to be no more tears, no more fear, no more striving, no more struggle, no more sickness, no more COVID, no more masks. Amen? Right? Only rest, only joy, only peace, only love forever and ever and ever. Does that sound amazing? Absolutely. And so if that resonates with your heart, if you're in that place of longing and awaiting, Um, The coming of Christ, uh, I think um, this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer might encourage you. It was from his Advent sermon in 1928, and he says this, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And so if you're in that place, if you're feeling troubled in your soul, if 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 you know you are poor and imperfect, You have come to the right place, a place where we are to look to Christ. I mean, we've got chaos all around us, and it's not only outside of us, it's even inside of us, inside of our own soul, and we've got to focus on something greater. We need to focus on who is greater, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so over the next four weeks, we want to pause, we want to reflect, and we want to behold the coming of Christ, his advent to make all things new, and he invite, how he invites us to hope and to trust in him, the one who has come and who will come again. And so today's, really, this whole sermon series is entitled, as you guys can see up there, The Fullness of Time, and it's based on two short but very important verses found in Galatians chapter 4. 
And so let's read Galatians chapter 4 together. These two verses, verses 4 and 5, are going to be the, the place of our meditation actually for the next month. Listen to God's word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As I said, each week we're going to look at one phrase of this glorious, beautiful passage. And we're like a, like a diamond. We're going to look at it from all different sides to behold its magnificence and how it reflects to us the character and the glory of our God. And so if you're taking notes, we're actually going to look at five Ps over the next month. Today, we're going to look at God's plan. Next week, God's pre-existence. Then we're going to move on to God's presence, God's propitiation. And last but not least, on Christmas Eve, God's purpose. And so today, we're going to consider the first phrase that's here, but when the fullness of time had come and examine God's plan to rescue, to redeem, and to restore his people with his love. And so before we jump into God's word, let's pray. Let's share our hearts with God and ask that God would share his heart with us as we look to his word. Oh God, we just confess to you that we need you right now. In fact, every moment, every hour, as the, as the hymn says, we need you. Right now, I need you. I pray that your word would speak to our souls, that we would know in the depths of our being your great plan to rescue and redeem the world. Oh God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, our sermon is entitled this morning, God's Perfect Plan, and we're going to examine uh, two aspects of God's perfect plan. First, God's plan. We're going to look at God's plan of perfect timing. And then second, God's plan of perfect love. And so first, God's plan of perfect timing is based right on this Right on this section where it says, but when the fullness of time had come, or if you've got the New Living Translation, it says, but when the right time came, or if you are a fan of Eugene Peterson with the message, but when the time arrived that was set by God. In other words, all of these translations, no matter what you look at, it all has to do with this idea of time. And not just time, but this word here says the fullness of time. It comes from the Greek word plerao which means to be filled to the top, to the brim, to the max. Um, there's another Greek writer who was writing around this time, and he talked about it in, in its, uh, when he used the word of a, of a ship that was waiting until it was filled completely for, with its freight and with its merchandise, with its sailors, with its oarsmen, and with even the, the soldiers before it would set out from the harbor. Or um, the Apostle Paul, if you want to go to a passage in the Bible, Philippians 4.18, he says to the church, I have full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received gifts from Epaphroditus that you sent. In other words, Paul says, I am filled up to the brim with the good gifts of God from you, Philippian church. Kids, all of you, thank you for being in here this morning for big church. I'm sure that's what you're hoping for for Christmas, right? right? Tell your parents, I want to be filled up to the brim with all the good Christmas gifts. I want all my Christmas gifts checked off to the max, right? Well, in this case, God's perfect Christmas gift of rescuing the world had to wait until the perfect timing. It's like that hourglass that's filling up, except, of course, it's not an hourglass. It is a time glass that's filling up. And it began with, when God set the date of the first 
Christmas before the first day of history. And time had to be filled up until, uh, up to that date before, as we read here, God sent forth his son. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you guys did this when you were a kid. Um, you guys ever make those paper links? Um, we used to do them in our classroom at school. Uh, paper links, we'd alternate between red and green construction papered links that were all linked together. And we'd come in every morning and for the next day of school, and we'd rip off one of those paper links, and each link represented a day that led to Christmas. And so, of course, rip off another day, and you're, you're looking, you're anticipating, you're excited, you're waiting for the day of Christmas. It was a way of keeping us focused on waiting with anticipation. And of course, while we were waiting, what are our parents doing? They are preparing, right? It's like Julia and I, this past week, what were we doing? A few nights ago, we were preparing, we were talking about what are we going to get for the kids? What are we going to do? And Well, that's the way God works. While his people have been waiting, really even since the beginning, since the book of Genesis that we looked at, God has been preparing his perfect plan for rescue and redemption. At just the perfect time, God sent forth his son. And so I want to examine why was this time perfect? Because actually, if you were to go back in history and you were to talk to the people of Judea of that time, they would have said, no, this is actually not a good time. If you were to kind of take the, a lens and look specifically at Judea, you would see God's people who were in a really difficult time. You see, Herod the Great had seized the throne of Israel. He had kind of captured his stolen title of king of the Jews through violence. And, and even when his sons had any sort of hint of posing a threat to him, he put them to death. The same Herod, he built a magnificent temple during that time, but he really didn't build it to God in Jerusalem. He, he built it more to himself and he gave its oversight to one corrupt high priest after another. And then he also restarted the temple tax that was instituted in Old Testament law. But instead of using that temple tax to beautify the temple and to help the people to worship the one true God, instead he used all of those proceeds to build cities and to establish more temples in honor of the Roman emperor and his pantheon of Roman deities rather than the one true God. And if you were to span out a little bit larger, you would look at the Roman Empire at this time, and it was just as vast as it was vicious. There was increasing racial tension. There was awful immorality, and there was this enormous army that would put any sort of voice or even hint of opposition to death. It was a time of unprecedented economic and political advancement for a select few noble and rich people, but for everyone else, it was horrific oppression. And by the first century BC, a dark cloud had settled over Israel, blocking any ray of hope. And yet, this was the perfect time for God. This is when God broke in. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, why? And of course, we, from a human perspective, we can't see all that God was up to, but just like you do when you go through something maybe traumatic, or you go through something hard, and you, you're like, what was that all about? And then you look back, and you're like, Oh, now I begin to see a little bit. I want us to do that a little bit this morning as it relates to God's perfect timing of establishing his perfect plan and sending his son, Jesus. So we're going to look at it from a number of different perspectives. In fact, five. And so if you're counting, number one is culturally. And culturally, the world was becoming more unified 
thanks to the exploits of Alexander the Great right before the Roman Empire. He had infused the world he conquered with, with Greek culture and more importantly, Greek language, so that by the time of the first century, this was the most literate society that had ever been established up to that point in time. More people than ever were being educated, and they, most of them knew Greek or Latin. And in fact, even the common people spoke Koine Greek, which is, of course, what our Bible is written in. So culturally, God saw it as the perfect time. Politically, the Roman Empire was at its height. Rome had brought most of the world under its rule, and it had established what's called the Pax Romana, universal Roman peace. They'd also established an amazing postal system that could send news fast throughout the empire. And not only that, but, but for the first time in history, people were able to travel through roads and highways that were protected by the government throughout the known world. These are the same roadways that the apostles could take the message of the good news to the far-off places that had never been reached before. Religiously, the world was diverse and open to new ideas, Greek and Roman polytheism that was becoming a way of the past. It was gradually being replaced by philosophers and, uh, and even emperor worship. And so they're moving from this polytheistic sort of mindset to potentially more of thoughts and ideas and even monotheism. And for the Jewish people, it was even more so than that. If you remember back when they were sent to exile, they were sent to exile because of their polytheism. And when they were in exile, they began to begin looking at who God is once again. And when they came back to Judea after the exile, they established these synagogues all around the community. So you didn't have to go to the temple to worship God. You could go to a synagogue to learn more about God, to understand this one true God. And they began to really understand what these prophets were talking about, how they had, had spoken for many years about this Messiah to come. And so they began to long for this Messiah to establish his rule over the Romans and to bring peace on, way, on earth the way that the prophets had spoken of long ago. And speaking of prophets, let's look at that lens of God's perfect timing prophetically. There are over 350 prophecies specifically fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. And you guys know many of them. Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin will give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. Micah 5, 2, out of Bethlehem will come forth a ruler whose origins are from of old. Hosea 11, 1 says that the Messiah will come out of Egypt. And you're like, what? But if we remember back, what happened to Jesus? He had to be a refugee with his mom and his dad to run away from the threat of Herod's putting to death children. And he was a refugee in Egypt for several years before coming back to settle in Nazareth. Or if you want to look at Isaiah 42, the prophecy that there would be this Messiah to come who would be a light for the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but for all nations. And he would open up the eyes of the blind. He would rescue the captive from those who are in the prison of darkness and sin. Peter Stoner, he's the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. And he was so fascinated by this that he just looked at eight specific prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. And he determined that the probability of fulfilling just eight was one in 10 to the 17th power. And he said, it'd be like 
like taking uh, all that number of silver dollars and putting it next to one another throughout the landscape of the whole state of Texas, and it would be two feet deep. And then he would give an, it would be like giving an instruction to a person. Hey, I want you to put on a blindfold and I want you to walk as far as you want, whatever direction you want. And then I want you to stop and I want you to pick up one silver dollar. And if that silver dollar is the one silver dollar that's marked with an X, then you've won the prize. And of course, the probability of that is just unfathomable. And yet Jesus did not just fulfill eight prophecies, but over 350. And so when Caesar Augustus wanted to count his people, and he wanted to mandate that everyone go to their city of origin, and Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, he had no idea that he was being used by God to accomplish his perfect plan of perfect timing. And so God's timing was was perfect prophetically, but last but not least, spiritually. In the fullness of time, that, that word fullness of time means that there was actually a lot of time that was unfull, right? I mean, lots of waiting, lots of longing, lots of hoping. And and in this time in the life of Israel, there was an increased waiting even more so. As I mentioned earlier, they began to really study the prophets, but, but God had actually been silent. He hadn't spoken through any prophets for over 400 years. And not only that, but as we weren't, we're not going to look at this this morning, really, but all through the book of Galatians, one of Paul's themes that he's writing about is how the people were under a curse. They were under the curse of the law. They had to be redeemed from the curse of the law because they were unable to fulfill it, and they were unable to be rescued from it. They were longing. They were hoping. They were waiting. They were preparing spiritually. Henry Melville says this. He says, the question has often been asked, why did not Christ come sooner? Why were patriarchs, kings, and prophets left to experience the sickness of heart arising from hope long deferred? It was necessary that the world should be left to itself in order that its own strivings would be proved insufficient, and that there would be a standing demonstration of the need of a revelation from God. Can you relate to that quote? Have your strivings in your life proved insufficient to accomplish the plan that you want to take place? Do you feel this sense of, ah, I just can't, I can't do it? That's exactly where God wanted his people to be, to long spiritually for him. And if you've noticed, this is the way that God often works, right? Go back to the book of Genesis over and over again. Think back on the fact that God waited 75 years to tell Abraham that he was going to promise to give him a son. I mean, all, even just that, waiting that amount of time. And then after he tells him he's going to give him a son, he had to wait another 25 years for Isaac to be born. Or fast forward to Exodus, right? He calls Moses to go to speak to Pharaoh, but it's only after 40 years of waiting in the wilderness, just watching sheep go by. If you fast forward to David, right, he's anointed as king by Samuel. But then he has to spend the next 13 years running from Saul, living in caves, fleeing from the king before he actually takes the throne. And all of them, if you you think about the analogy back of the paper chain links, they don't know how long this chain is going to go. They're just 
Ripping off one paper link after that, okay, I'm going to wait a little longer, I'm going to wait a little longer, I'm going to wait a little longer. And if you're like me, that is hard when you don't know how long you're going to have to wait, none of them knowing when their Christmas was going to come. If I could pose a question for God, it might be, okay, so God, I, I appreciate your promises, but why do you give us promises and then make us wait for so long to have them fulfilled? I mean, why don't you just like tell us you're going to do it and then immediately deliver, right? I mean, as Americans, we are not good at waiting, are we? And we're good at working, we're good at producing, we're good at doing, but waiting? We do not like to wait. In fact, we, we kind of feel like waiting is wasting. We live in a Amazon Prime culture, right? Deliver the next day. Well, used to deliver the next day. <laughs> it's a few days after that now. But, but I'll, I mean, can you imagine like if Amazon Prime's slogan was like, hey, we're going to deliver to you in 2045, just like we did for Abraham 25 years later. I mean, no one is going to sign up for that plan. We don't like to wait. And I want you to just think about this for a moment. God's work is slow. Think about something that you've been waiting on for a long time. Maybe you're waiting on a doubt to be resolved, or, or maybe you're, you're waiting on a healing to be given, or, or maybe you're waiting on a child to be born, or maybe you're waiting for that son or daughter to come home. Waiting is hard work, isn't it? I was thinking about this as it relates to um, my concussion. I'm not sure if you knew this, but about three months ago, I was in a car accident and uh, just had a lot of concussion symptoms, was in the dark for several weeks. Um, and then just since that time, I've been really sensitive to light and sound and uh, still got ears ringing a little bit even right now. But, but um, I'm so grateful that God has carried me through this time and I'm actually up here for the first time in a long time to be able to preach. But that waiting was hard. And one verse that was a real comfort to me was Lamentations 3. And it says this, it says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I can tell you this, I was not waiting quietly for God's salvation. Uh, There was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of just, God, what are you up to? How long is this going to be? When am I going to get better? When is this headache going to go away? But this verse communicates to me that as much as God wanted to heal my head, he more importantly wanted to heal my heart. It wasn't just about waiting for my healing, but it was about waiting for the God of healing. He said, what did he say? He says, it is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And that is what Advent is all about. It is about waiting, but it's more than just about waiting your circumstances to change. It's about waiting for God to show up. It's about relating and coming to God and saying, God, you're all that I've got. God does some of his best work while you're waiting on him rather than receiving what you've waited for. In fact, maybe it's actually him that you've been waiting for. See, waiting is never wasted by God. And so you might be like, you might be like, but Scott, you know, you just waited three months. I've been waiting three years, or I've been waiting 30 years, or I've been waiting all my life Don't you know how hard it is? And I can honestly tell you, no, 
I don't. But I can tell you this, so many times we can view God as if he's up in heaven just sort of reacting to the events that unfold down on the earth, but nothing could be further from the truth. If we learned anything from our study of Genesis recently, even last week, right? God intended good for Joseph and his brothers. Let me assure you this, God does not respond to history. He writes it. And he doesn't just write it in a, in a big way over all of the history of the world, but even our personal history as well. God is always working as we're waiting. He's working slowly behind the scenes to accomplish his perfect timing for us. And it's not a moment too fast. It's not a moment too slow. It's just right. So that whenever God does come through for us, we can say with the Apostle Paul, in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. You see, God tells us, my plan is perfect. My timing is perfect. You've got to trust in me. Just as my timing was perfect at Advent for sending my son, so my timing will be perfect for you and what you're longing for. But if I have to be honest, um, when it comes to trusting in God's plan, I, I think God being a, a God of perfect timing is, is, is nice, it's good. But the reality is, what is the motivation behind that timing? You see, if God is just a God who's distant, a God who's just sort of like working things out, but he doesn't necessarily have my best interests at heart, well then, I don't necessarily want his perfect timing. Or if God is full of wisdom, but he's not necessarily full of, of goodness towards me, then, then why, would I, why would I really want to wait for that? If I, if, I would, if I were to commend you to trust in God's plan, it would just be about trusting in his time, uh, perfect timing. It would be about trusting in his perfect love. So that moves us to our second point, God's plan of perfect love. We've got to look at God's motivation for why he does what he does. What sort of king is he really? What sort of sovereign is he? In order to answer that question, we've got to not just go back to the beginning of time, but even before time began. So we're going to go on a little, little history chase with me uh, and actually to learn from what was taking place before time began. John 17 is a really good help to us. This is Jesus' prayer to his father right before he went to the cross for us, and he says this in John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so here we get a little hint of what God was up to before time began. You see, what was he up to? He was up to love. He was a God of love. He was a God who was pouring out his love upon his son before time began. And a, and a love that then was responded to by the son back to the father. And in fact, this is the way that John Simon puts it. 
when he describes the nature and the activity of God, he says, within God's very nature is a divine rhythm or pattern of continuous giving and receiving, not only love, but also glory, honor, life, each in its fullness. God the Father loves and delights in the Son. Jesus receives that love and pleases the Father. Jesus honors the Spirit, and the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. Each person in the Trinity loves honors and glorifies the other and receives love and honor back from the others, there is never any lack. And so if you were to imagine with me before time began, there was perfect love. The father pouring out his love on his son, the son receiving that love as the beloved son and then responding back in love to the father, the spirit breathing life and love into that relationship as the Godhead. There was never any need. There was never any insufficiency. There was never any lack. Perfect love, perfect giving, perfect receiving, perfect glory, perfect honor. And then it's out of that love before time began that God said, I love you. Ephesians 1 puts it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Look at that last part again. In love. He determined before the beginning of time that we would be adopted, that we'd be brought in as his children. God loved you with the same love that he loved his son. Richard Sibbs says this. He says, The Father, Son, and Spirit were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. But the Father so enjoyed his fellowship with his son that he wanted to have the goodness of it spread out, communicated, and shared with others. This plan of creation and redemption was a free choice born out of nothing but love. Or as A. Brockle says, love moved the Father and love moved the Lord Jesus to you and me. This is God's plan of perfect love. I mean, before the foundation of the world, before he established his plan, he thought of you. He set his affections upon you before time began. Just as God loves the, excuse me, God the Father loves the Son, he loves you as his sons and daughters. And this was the motivation for him establishing this plan to create you, to love him to create you, to love one another. And then when we turned away in self-love rather than God-love, he pursued you again. Michael Reeves expressed his joy when he thought about this in this way. He said, The Father so loves that he desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship he enjoys with his Son. And that means that I can know God as he truly is, as Father. In fact, I can know the Father as my Father. So if you are wrestling right now, if you are struggling, 
If you're, if you're having a hard time waiting because you're not sure of God's love, let me assure you beyond the shadow of a doubt, God loves you. It was love that overflowed to you from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God is so committed to you experiencing that love that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And he's not even just committed to sending his son, but as Galatians 4 looks at, we'll look at more in the future, he's, he sent his spirit into your heart so that you would know the depth of his love and you would cry out, Abba, Father. That is amazing, perfect love. His love is it's personal. It's, it's relentless. It's pursuing. It's eternal And it's shown most fully and deeply, not when Jesus came as a little tiny baby, but when he gave his life for you and for me. 1 John 4 says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, we might have life in him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. That propitiation, by the way, that word, we'll look at it more in the future, but it means a wrath bearer. That Jesus experienced the wrath of his father, the one who had loved him since the foundation of the world, even since before time began. And he experienced, instead of love on the cross, he experienced wrath so that we would never experience the wrath of God. There's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you hear that over and over again? God's timing and God's perfect love poured out for you and for me. This is why Jesus has not only came once to communicate his love to us, but he will never stop pursuing, never stop loving us. And once he comes again, he wants to make sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that he will experience his love perfectly and forever. And so he'll get rid of all of those barriers that keep us from experiencing or trusting in God's love completely. That's good news. Uh, as a friend of mine, Robert Chong, he's a, he's a pastor up in Louisville, and he asked me a question. He said, how is your relationship to God, Scott? I was like, well, it's all right. It's okay. Um, so it has its ups and its downs. You know, sometimes I feel a little closer to him than I, than I do other times. And he asked me a second question that I hadn't really thought of before. He said, well, how is God's relationship to you? Well, I guess it never changes. I guess there's nothing that can separate me from his love, not even my worst sin. I guess there's, his relationship to me is always the same, just full of steadfast love over and over and over again. And he said, well, Scott, why don't you focus on that more? Guys, that is what the Advent season is all about. The God of love coming down to us and the God of, God, God of love promising that he will come again. And so as we wind up our, our sermon this morning, I just want to encourage you 
towards three quick things. First and foremost, I encourage you, commune with the God of love. When you come to him, be confident that his only disposition towards you is love. He doesn't hate you. He's not indifferent towards you. He is wild about you. He's crazy about you. He's made you in his image, and he's made for you. He's made you to experience his love. So just spend time with him. Enjoy him. Rest in him. I join with the Apostle Paul in praying that you would have strength within your inner being through the Spirit to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that it would even go beyond what you know right here, right now. How is it possible that God could love me this much? God is inviting you to spend time with him. Second, share his love with others. Out of the experience of that love from God, you are to share that love with others. So when you're tempted to turn to selfishness or to anger or to even hate towards those who have hurt you, instead remember the God who has never stopped pursuing you, never stopped loving you, and out of that experience of his love, share that love with others. Advent is a choice for us. Advent is a season where we decide, I am going to choose love. I'm going to choose waiting I'm going to choose to, to show love to this person, even if they're not showing love to me. Even in the face of rejection, I'm not going to stop loving that person because God has never stopped loving me. So share his love with others. And last but not least, wait. Wait with hope for the God of love to return. It's the reason why we have this first candle lit here. It's a sign for us that the God of light and love has come and he will come again. His timing is perfect. His love is perfect. His plan is perfect. And his plan is for you and for me. It's not just sort of, oh, God's going to come and save the world. No, God is going to come and save each of us who are waiting eagerly. For him. So, for Oaks, may we commune with God of love, may we share his love with others, and may we wait until he comes again. Let's pray.